Well, brethren, let me encourage you to take out your copy of the Scriptures and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 15. Looking at a very large passage today, we're going to read, picking up from last week, um, beginning in verse, <clears throat> verse 5, and then read through to the end of chapter 16. So that is a lot. We'll see what God is going to do to help us to cover this much material. Again, pick up in verse 15, and then reading through the end of chapter 16. After these sayings, I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels was completed. And I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink for it is their just due. I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues. And they did not repent and give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and, it, and its waters were dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it's, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such a mighty great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. A great hail from heaven fell upon men, 
each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plagues of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. The word of the Lord, brethren. Go to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for not only preserving so much of the Scriptures, all of the Scriptures through the years, but Lord, we think of this book of Revelation, which many early uh, disciples perhaps were challenged or not whether it should be included in the canon. Father, we're grateful that it is here for us and that it has been proven and validated over and over again that, Lord, this is your holy word. And what a wonderful and glorious word it is to us as your church that you would show us, our God, that you will judge the nations, those who trouble your people, Lord, that they are indeed storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And that in each and every turn we find ourselves as Christians also seeing that, God, you are preserving us and you are giving us pictures of the glorious new heaven and new earth which is ours to come and that it will not be long for we will enter in into that new Jerusalem. Lord, we pray that these things, these truths will keep us sober-minded. It will keep us quickened and alert even this hour to hear your word for Jesus' sake. Amen. Again, brethren, as you can see, we're going to cover a great deal of ground today, which means we're not going to be taking in, uh, uh, sort of a close-in look at a lot of these particular passages, but more of an overview, a high-view uh, approach of the text. And I will say that the reason for this approach today is you know that the book of Revelation is filled with repetition, and we have already studied several of the cycles, and when you have seven cycles essentially covering the same time frame and some of the very same ideas and truths, albeit from a different angle, it can begin to appear redundant to speak of the same truths over and over. But it is this aspect of different angles of each cycle that forces us to still take our time and to look at each cycle as it is presented to us in the book of Revelation. As you know, we are now in the fifth cycle of these bold judgments. Last week, if you were here, the seven bold judgments were introduced to us. That was the third of what we call the seven series or the three sets of seven series of judgments. We've already studied the seven seal judgments the seven trumpet judgments, and now we're going to look at the seven bowl judgments. And as I promised or pointed out last week, that as well, there is a progressive parallel going on, taking place, as it were, in these judgments. In other words, there is an intensification of God's judgment that is clearly manifest, even though each of the seven series of judgments cover the same time period which again, as we've said over and over again, is between the first and second advents. In seal judgments, we do see some of these differences in that the seal judgments, we saw that the quarter of the earth was um, being judged, as it were, and afflicted. And then in the trumpets, there was an increase, an intensification. We saw that one-third of the earth was um, being afflicted. And so clearly we see now, as we've read this text, that the bold judgments will infect the entire earth. So God clearly is sending a message to his churches in revealing this intensification in these judgments. Now, during the sealed judgments, we did learn and we pointed out that there are certain things that are, have a light on them, if you will. One of the sealed judgments is that we learned there that God protects his people. He puts a seal upon them. 
and they will be protected through all of the judgments throughout history and indeed even the final judgment. Not physically, it rains on the just and the unjust, but spiritually, we will ultimately be protected and arrive safely in glory. Again, the body they may kill, God's truth about it still, and that truth is that God has promised that those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he will indeed glorify. During the trumpet judgments, we learn that these are God's warning signals, if you will. The trumpet is blowing. It's a warning trumpet, if you will. That earthly judgments that take place, whether they're natural disasters or they're man-made wars, every one of them is a call of God to mankind on the earth to repent of their idolatry and rebellion because of their sinning against his holy law. But now in these bold judgments, or these seven plagues, as it says, God is teaching us that for many in this world, no amount of judgment and the suffering that it produces will cause the non-elect to repent. Apart from the divine act of grace, spiritually dead sinners will never, ever give up their idolatry. They will never give up their hatred for God and, his hatred, and their hatred for his holy law. And so thus for them, these bold judgments are symbolic of the complete and final destruction. Now let me pause here for a moment and speak to you about this idea of God's wrath again and his judgments. With such ignorant of, ignorance of the holiness of God, all these judgments and all the talk of God sending sinners to hell is what led many in our, in our world today to conclude that this God of yours is some tyrannical, sick God who gets pleasure out of sending people to hell. Many people think this way, and because of that, they reject God of the Bible. They reject the Bible for this very reason. It's, it's not that they wouldn't mind having a God who's a God of grace and love and, and will do all these wonderful things for us, but they don't want the God who has this teaching on hell and judgment, and particularly a final judgment. A famous atheist, I'm sure you've heard of him, Richard Dawkins, had this to say. He says, I am persuaded that child abuse, child abuse is no exaggeration when used to describe what teachers, teachers and priests are doing to children whom they encourage to believe in something like eternal hell. This, is, this idea is what makes him believe that there's no such thing. There's no way that this could be something that a God would do. Again, it is an ignorance of who God is, particularly his holiness. And what people like Dawkins fail to realize is that God has shown him immense grace, common grace. God has let Dawkins and many others on this planet live on his earth, breathe his air, eat his food, And all the while, here is Dawkins himself promoting that God doesn't even exist. Dawkins and others defy their conscience. They defy the very clear evidence that the Bible says that creation gives them. He sins against his creator every day. And yet for now, by means of his common grace, God allows him time. God has given him yet right now time to repent and believe. I think he's like 80 or 80-something now. You see, all of these judgments of God, they have taken place throughout history. They are not only small measures of God's wrath on display, they're also pictures of common grace. 
in that each judgment that a sinner survives or a sinner hears about or knows about in this life is God saying to them, repent before your final judgment comes, and then it will be too late. They're all trumpets sounding out. And so right now, we're living in the days where God's common grace still abounds. That's why so many are, quote, enjoying God's earth. They're eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, and they're just going right about, and they think this is what life is all about. But one day, it will all end. And the cup of God's indignation will get full. And why will it be full? Because the cup of the world's iniquity will have all been come filled to the brim. All of the iniquities, that every, the last one that's going to fill it up, if you will. And that's when it's going to be over. Part of the reason God allowed the people of Israel, his people, Israel, to stay in Egypt, Egyptian bondage for 400 years was because, as Genesis 15, 16 says, that the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. In other words, God was given the Canaanite nations 400 years of common grace, 400 years for all their sins to be poured into a cup, stacking up, filling up. But then one day the cup would be full and God's judgment would come and he would destroy destroy all of them and give the land to his people. That's a typology of what's coming at the end of time. It's a picture of what's going on today as well. Today the world is filling up their cup of iniquity, day by day. But one day the cup will become full, and then God will end the days of his common grace. They will be over. The day of salvation will be gone, and there will be no opportunity for men to repent anymore. And there will be nothing left but his wrath, which will be poured back out on them, drinking their own blood. The judgments that they would get upon and put upon God's people will be put back upon them sevenfold, as it were. Now, these are some of the things we learn when we look at these three series of seven judgments in the book of Revelation. Now, as we take up our large portion of Scripture today, I want to place it all under three headings. We'll look at the source of the judgments, the recipients of the judgments, and then the purpose of the judgment. First, the source, the source. In verses 5 to 8 of chapter 15, John gives us another vision of the temple. Again, all of this is symbolic. We're to understand that it's symbolic. But that being said, we might conclude chronologically that it would seem that this takes place after the resurrection. The bowls are beginning ready to start. They're in, Christ is in the temple. He's entered into glory, and he will start to carry out his judgments upon the earth as God the Father has given him authority to do. And as usual, he will send out his angels to execute these judgments, just like they did back in Sodom and Gomorrah. The heavenly temple is the seat of God's presence and of his authority. And these bowls, that they're filled with his wrath, not the wrath of the angels. And so the source of all these judgments is God. He is the one who's ordaining each and every one of them. Again, as we've quoted three weeks in a row, counting today, has the calamity come to the city and the Lord not done it. And all of this is leading up to and including the, uh, the final judgment in the last bowl. But then notice John sees that the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony is in heaven and it's opened. The ark of the testimony was in the holy of holies. And inside the Ark of the Testimony were, among other things, the tablets of stone, the the Ten Commandments. 
And so, brethren, what is this telling us but that God on that day when he judges the people and as he does today and will in the final judgment, the standard by which the world will be judged are these two tablets, will be the Ten Commandments. It will be opened up and it alone, and it will be what the sinners will be judged by, by his law. Hear what Paul said in Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. This temple filled with the holy presence of God means that no sinner can enter in. The testimony of the ark was also the place of God's mercy seat. Here is where God, here's where Christ's blood was poured out to make atonement for the sins of his people. But those who refuse to repent the mercy seat will be closed off to you. That's what these last seven bowls are teaching us. God's mercy is not going to be extended forever and ever to sinners in this world. That's why it's saying that this one is the complete. This is complete, even though it's covering the same time. As 15 verse 1 says, these seven bowls, the wrath of God is complete in these seven bowls. They almost, they almost give us a picture, if you will, of what it looks like when it becomes too late. There is mercy right now if you would repent and believe, but in these seven bold judgments, you will, you will see what, what awaits is that those who refuse to repent, there, there's no hope for them in this day of salvation. All who refuse will be cut out. They're not allowed in. And that's what we're living in today, though, brethren. We are indeed. We're living in the day, the opportunity that one can be saved from the wrath which is to come. That's what every day is in this world right now. That's the big screaming thing that goes out in the land. This is another day for sinners to see that in creation there's a God, in their conscience there's a law, and that in the Bible there's a Savior. And that's just, this is what's being said. This is what needs to go out. This is the gospel message. This is the day of salvation. And why is it saying the day? Because there is coming a day when there will be no more days of opportunities. God hasn't poured out the last bowl yet. And it's not only because the sin of the world has not become full, but it is to give you who are not yet saved time to repent. Over and over, the Bible warns of taking for granted. How do you know, O man, whether you will live or die? Because you say you boast, well, I'll do this tomorrow, I'll do that tomorrow, James says. You do not know what a day may bring forth. I do not know, brethren, how God could give sinners a more vivid picture showing us how desperately one needs to come to the Savior today. Not thinking, well, maybe another day. When he moves on me, he's moving now. He's telling you now. How much more can he say to you than what he has already said, as the song says? Well, brethren, this moves us to the source of the judgments, from the source of the judgments to the recipients. According to chapter 16 and verse 1, we notice that it is the whole earth the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. And then narrowing it down specifically in verse 2, it says it is those who have the mark of the beast and those who worship the image. Now, brethren, it's not only unfortunate that certain end-time views 
teach that this just speaks of some group that's going to be alive in the last days. I believe it's potentially soul damning. And why do I say this? Because unsaved people today, many of them, never consider that right now they have the mark and they're worshiping the image of the beast. They think it's some other group of people down yonder somewhere, not them. They think it's some end-time computer chip or some kind of tattoo on the forehead of those worshiping the devil. And so they're not fearful. They're not afraid of God. They don't think that they have the image, worshiping the image. They don't think that they're having the mark, but that's what they've got. These things, brethren, speak of every single human being who is right now unsaved. Because all unsaved people are worshiping something rather right now besides God. Right now. All of, the, all of the unsaved right now are making idols out of something instead of God. There's no neutral spot. It may be careers, relationships, money, sports, desires for pay, praise, or other immoral sins we could put on the list. But whatever it is, if you are not saved, something other than God occupies your heart and your mind. And all of these things are nothing less than an image that the devil has set up in front of you to keep you from repenting and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the result of all who take the mark of the beast and worship the image is they become the recipients of the seven plagues or the seven bold judgments. And when you look at these judgments, you discover that to a great degree, they parallel two things. Almost to a T, they parallel the, the trumpet judgments. Trumpet one, bowl one, the earth is what's being looked at. Trumpet two, bowl two, the sea. Trumpet three, bowl three, the rivers and springs, that is the fresh water. Trumpet four, bowl four, the sun. Trumpet five, the pit of the abyss. Bowl five, the throne of the beast, so the same thing. Trumpet six, bowl uh, six, the river Euphrates. And then trumpet seven, bowl seven, lightning and hail. It's also make an interesting note here that these bold judgments also in many ways parallel the ten plagues of Egypt. Rivers turning into blood, sores upon the people, frogs and diseases tormenting the Egyptians. And this teaches us that what happened in those days was a type and shadow of what God is going to do in the world today. Egypt, as many of you know, is is symbolic of the world. The world longs to see his church put in bondage. That's what they live for. That's what they go after, though they don't know it most of the time. The world refuses to let his people worship God, him, in peace. We saw that in Canada last year. And the world is constantly receiving God's judgments in various ways, and yet it never leads them to repentance. I mean, what more would God have to do in our nation even up to this point to cause all of our world, all of our nation's leaders to start in every social media thing that they have, repent. We need to call on our God. We need to call on God. Y'all see what's happening? We're losing our nation. We're losing babies in the womb. We're, we're losing morality. This God is a moral God. He's a holy God. Can we not all see this? And yet none of them are doing it. Because they need to get elected again. 
And they know such language would put them out of the marketplace. But that's what the cost will be if you don't do what God says. Now, brethren, even when the worst of all these judgments come, like in Egypt, brethren, even the death of their firstborns, they refused to repent. For a little while, they felt bad about it, but then they changed their mind. And so it will be, brethren, for the same for this world in the last day. This is what these bowls are about. In the last day, all these judgments be pulled out, these bowls, even the final one coming on where the things are the worst, accumulating at the very end when it could be as worse as it could ever be, earthquake, we've never symbolic of just a shaking of the world, whatever things would be going on, and they still won't repent. Now, with that said, the primary difference between the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, as I've said, is the intensity. But all the seven bowl judgments cover God's judgments upon this earth, beginning with the time of Christ's first coming to his second. Sometimes these judgments come from natural disasters. These things are symbolic. Sometimes these come from result of diseases, viruses. Sometimes they come as a result of nations going to war. Many a nation has ceased to exist because they lost countless lives and their nation because they were defeated in war. These are God's judgments, all of it. You can every day get up and look on a news website or in your newspaper or look on the news on your TV, and all that bad stuff that nobody likes to talk about or look at, I don't want to watch that news, it's always bad. Well, it is. They're God's judgments. You wonder why, why are the world getting better? (laughs) The bowls being poured out. But these, again, brethren, have not brought repentance to the land. Then sometimes God is judging the world through allowing demonic influence, to allow the demonic influences, people, the demons, to have their way with sinners. We see that in the sixth bowl down in verse 13. If you look at it again, I saw these three unclean, this unholy trinity. Here it is. I saw these unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth. Remember, they they working through humanity, fallen humanity, and of the whole world. And again, it says there, we'll talk about it more in a moment, to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And since this unholy trinity also all these enemies of God, they too will become recipients of God's judgments in the last day. Right now, God is allowing them to be used, as it were, to chasten the wicked, and they'll be used to judge the wicked, but in the end, they themselves will also be judged. We see that with the nations, but God would use a wicked nation to punish his people Israel, and then later, he would destroy the wicked nation. And so the devil, the own holy trinity in chapter 19, the, priest, uh, the false prophet and the beast will be thrown in in the next cycle. And then the last cycle, it says in Revelation 20.10, the devil also who received, deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is not the devil's hell down there telling people to do this and do that like he's ruling, running the place. He will be tormented along with the wicked. Now, all of this, brethren, leads us to my third point, which is the purpose of these judgments. 
First, they're given to glorify and to satisfy God's justice. The purpose of these judgments is for God to be glorified and for his justice to be satisfied. By the time the third bowl is poured out, notice what the angels are led to say in verse 5 and 6. You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is what? Their just due. God will be glorified for his great mercy upon sinners, but he also will be glorified for bringing judgment, full and complete justice against all who are doomed to destruction. We read about this, don't we, in the book of Romans in chapter 9. Listen to this. This is fascinating. Listen. For the scripture says, verse 17, to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose, there's our word, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Why did Pharaoh do what he did? God raised him up to show his power, to glorify his justice. And yet Pharaoh fully responsible for his own iniquities. We could go further in Romans 9, verse 22. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endure with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? That's what they are. They're prepared for destruction. Now, we talked about this last week, but in that day, we will see God in the beauty of his holiness, and we will understand completely why it was necessary and glorious that God vindicated his law because it vindicates him. It vindicates him. Now, the second purpose for these judgments is, as we've said this several times already, but it's warranted in the text, that it answers the prayers of the martyrs back in Revelation 6.10. Remember, they prayed, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Everything the world and the devil did to harm and to hurt the people of God will be judged for it with perfect and holy justice. And notice that not only this produces praise in the hearts of the angels, but these also in the hearts of the saints in verse 7. And I heard another from the altar, I believe again, looking, hearkening back to Revelation 6, where the saints there at the altar, the martyrs, are even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are what? your judgment. The church will praise him in that day for what he does to this wicked world. The third purpose of these judgments is to warn everyone to always be ready for the final judgment. Verse 15, Jesus is speaking. If you have a red letter edition, you know this. These are his words. He says, behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. These are the words of the Lord Jesus, but they were also his words back in Revelation 3. When he spoke these words to the church at Laodicea, the the lukewarm church, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Same idea. All of these judgments in history and the promise of God's final judgment are the fact that, and the fact that it comes so unexpectedly, brethren, is our Lord's warning to not spurn his invitation 
to come to him and be saved, to not count it as a light thing. This is what comes out of the parable in Matthew 22, and I'd like for you to turn there quickly if you would. Matthew 22, I believe this is so important as we consider what's been saying in these bold judgments. Matthew 22, verse 1, we have the parable of the wedding feast. Jesus answered and spoke to him again by parable. He said this, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. Sound familiar? The father, the son, the church. And he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. No doubt referring to Israel. He came into his own. His own received him not. Ultimately refers also to later to Gentiles who will refuse him. But in verse 4, again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, fatted cattle, and are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. Those are the images of the beast, brethren. And the rest seized his servants, treated him spitefully, and killed them. There's the persecution of God's people. Verse 7, when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he went out, and his armies destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. That's the Babylon. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. Everybody's called. Everybody's called. Verse 10, or everybody gets the, not, the idea is the outward call here. Verse 10, so those servants went out into the highway and gathered together all whom they found both bad and good, and the wedding, ha- the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot. That's the angels. Take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, few are chosen. That parable, brethren, is what we have going on in our, in our passage today. God is calling the world to repentance. He's been doing it for 2,000 years. Christ inaugurated that kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like. And then from that time on, he has sent out his servants to call people to repentance because this is the day of salvation. This is the day in which you get an invitation to come to the wedding. But if you think light of it, you will show up in the last day with no wedding garment. And then you will be cast out. You will be speechless. You'll have nothing to say but have to own it all. Well, there's a third and final purpose for these judgments. And that is to bring all the world together for the final and last battle which this wicked world, between this wicked world and its creator. We saw that in verse 14 and 16. Spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings and the earth and of the whole world so that it'll be a demonic influence in the last day to gather them to battle of that great day of God Almighty. So the battle is there. Again, it's between the demons who are influencing the, the wicked world in that day and between God. Verse 16, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Most of you know there has been no shortage of books and sermons on what is called the Battle of Armageddon. 
Many believe it's going to be an actual battle in the last day between Israel and various nations of this world. And according to them, it will take place in Israel in the plains of Megiddo. Of course, you shouldn't be surprised to know I don't believe that at all. As I've pointed out, and I think sufficiently shown, that the book of Revelation is filled with symbolism, symbolic language. And there's no reason to think that this isn't symbolic as well. In fact, there's ample reason to think this because there is an area in Israel, this particular area in Megiddo was a site of several wars for Israel, where God's people in the Old Testament were attacked over and over again by Gentile and wicked nations. For instance, in Judges 4 and 5, a Canaanite general named Caesarea, or Caesarea, I think is how you pronounce it, being heavily armed with 900 ironclad chariots, went out against Israel in Megiddo. Israel had been in bondage with them for 20 years, and God's people cried out, just as they did in Revelation 6.10, how long, O Lord? And God heard their cry, and he would bring a great victory for Israel that day. God would destroy them all. And it looked impossible for Israel that Israel could win such a battle as this with these 900 ironclad chariots, and Israel had nothing with which to compete with except a God who was on their side. Another battle in Megiddo recorded in 2 Chronicles 35, where again, two Gentile nations come up and fight against the people of God. And so the area became known to Israel as the place where wicked Gentile nations would gather together to fight against God's people. And so it's being used here to symbolize that in the last day, the ungodly nations of the world will come together and fight against the church in a way that it had never done throughout all history. It's, going to, it's heading in that direction. The news that he's trying to, they're trying to put around the church is going to get tighter and tighter to the last day, and it will look like they almost, he almost has the church put down, and Christ will show up. Christ will show up and destroy the enemy. The world will pull their resources together, just as the Egyptians and the Assyrians did. They didn't like each other either, but they liked the church worse. When they gathered against Josiah, and again, the church will think that all will be lost. How can we fight against the powers of the nation? If they want you to have a virus car to go in to get food for your family. I mean, at some point, you have to make a decision. If, some of, if you can't grow land on the food on your land. And so you may make us feel that there's no way out. Again, but then when we least expect it, Christ will show up, destroy them all by the word of his power. As Martin Luther wrote, one little word shall fail the devil in that day. All the powers of hell will be gathered together, and they'll be thinking, oh, we almost, we've got them, we've got them, just like Satan probably did on more than one occasion, like in the wilderness or in the Garden of Gethsemane. And each time, Christ turn it around, destroy, and defeat. This is what happened in the day of the Egyptians at the Red Sea. They're the people of God, are they thinking, it's no way cross, we're going to perish here. And then God shows his mighty power destroys the enemies of his people, and then gives everything to the people of God. God, according to his very purpose and plan, he will execute this by his sovereign power. And he will destroy and judge the enemies of his people. And as verse 19 says, he will remember Babylon and give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Like Egypt, 
Babylon is also a type of this world as it lives in rebellion to God's law. And so thus one day that seventh angel will pour out that seventh bowl into the air and he will cry out in a loud voice from the temple and from that throne saying, it is done. And just like we have seen in the previous cycles, a final judgment takes place. The horrors described in verse 21 where the great hell falling on men in the last day, again, is another part of symbolism. It's the same kind of symbolic word that was given to us at the end of the, the judgments there in, the, uh, in chapter 6, verse 16, where they cried about the mountains and the rocks to fall upon them. Same thing. It is symbolic of the great and final judgment which will befall the unsaved and the devils on that day. If the book of Revelation shows us anything, it shows us how everything is moving towards that day. I am surprised, at, well, not surprised, but and not having ever studied through the book like we're doing now, I don't know that I gave a lot of thought about that in my Christian walk all these years. But now, after having studied it, I don't know that I'll ever be able to get it out of my mind that every day we're inching closer and closer to that final day of judgment. And it's the day that the Lord says it's going to come like a thief. There will be an Armageddon, but it will be a cosmic one in nature. Not some small battlefield in the plains of Megiddo with man-made weapons. This battle will shake the whole earth, according to verse 18 and the world will still not repent. It will be that much more angry at God. They will be hurting in fierce pain with sores. Just get angry at God. Oh, how entrenched is the unsaved heart to iniquity. It is welded and can never be unwilled by the grace of God through the new birth. The world will one day fill up her cup of iniquity, just like the Amorites. And God will wipe out all the enemies of his people. What did he do when he wiped out Israel's enemies in the land of Canaan? He gave the land to his people. And in the last day, God will wipe out all again the enemies of his people and give the new heavens and the new earth to his people. These days, the world is defiling the earth. One day, he will wipe out all that is, that is defiling and give the new earth to his people. Well, brethren, how ought this to apply to us as Christians today as we conclude? Well, first of all, these horrible judgments are particularly, and particularly the final judgment, is a call for all of us to be diligent to make our calling and election sure. Peter would go on to say that if we do this, we will no wise stumble, and that there would be an entrance to the kingdom of God given to us through Jesus Christ. This is what we live for. This is what we wake up. This is what we strive for. This is our purpose and goal, ultimate purpose and goal in life as a Christian, to always be looking to making sure of our calling in our election. So dear child of God, don't get, a, get drawn away from, by these images of the beast because the world is full of them. The world will tempt you. The world will try to hurt you. But remember this very sober word from the Apostle John. The world is passing away. Not will, 
just in the sense in the end, it is passing away and the lust thereof. It's no place for us, for Christians, to fellowship. We have to live in it. We just can't be of it. And often, sometimes, we are caught in it. There's grace for that. But we must be diligent to make our call and election sure. You know, I know we've preached a lot on the judgments, God's judgments. And I know it can become very weary week after week looking at these things, but please hear me when I say something here. If these things are true, and they are, is it wise to turn our eyes and our ears away from these realities? Just to say, well, you know, I get sick of it. It's the same mentality. Well, you know, I don't like watching any news, and I, you can watch too much of it. I'm, I'm probably more on that end. But just to turn it all off because you just don't like hearing bad news, be careful that you blind yourself to the the judgments that are going on and not making the connection of what God is doing in the world today. On the contrary, brethren, we should see these things and they should cause us to live soberly and righteously in this present evil world. But it should also encourage us to know that one day our Lord will indeed show up and make all things right. We are safe, brethren. Don't let the devil make you a fearful Christian, make you afraid of what's going on in the world, afraid of what, what's going to happen. Yes, well, we have to suffer very much so, perhaps. But don't sin against God and being more afraid of the suffering than being faithful to God. This is what we're called to. This is all we're called to, really, brethren, at the end of the day, is just to be faithful. And as he told the churches, even unto death. That's what we are here for, to be faithful to the end. To those who are living for this world, you've been warned. You have the mark. You're being led astray by the beast and his images. So the word again in conclusion to you is to flee from this wrath which is to come. It most certainly is coming. You could have a little judgment show up on your own. Somebody, you could get really sick. You could have something happen that's a massive, major, life-altering event. These two are God's little trumpets calling you to seek the Savior while he may be found. Because the day, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next week, but I can promise you this, today is a day. For salvation. Today, you get a wedding invitation. You may not get one next week. You get one today. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for not hiding back, for not holding back, as it were, Lord, the innumerable judgments that are written in the Scriptures. We, we see them all through the Old Testament. Over and over in the prophets, your people fall away and you bring wars and judgments. And then there are other Gentile wicked nations who also defile you. And Lord, you bring judgment upon them and over and over their judgments. But what common grace, what grace, Lord, that you have not, Lord, wiped it all out and started everything from the day of Noah. But Lord, you have 
use it as a time to call a people for yourself. You will have a people for yourself. We pray that they would all be in here today, that none among us would take another day and, and not make use of it, to think light of it, but seek the Savior while he may be found. Be glorified, our God, in your grace and in your mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.